Welcome back to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm seeking to shape the space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity charades and political pablum by giving voice to good, hardworking people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. You know, speaking of Chicago legends, this year is turning out to be a bona fide Chicago legends episode. <laughs> We're going to explore the working life of a Chicago restaurant veteran. And we're going to have a special guest question from the legendary kosher sausage king of Chicago, Scott Robin. And this episode of For a Living is a celebration of a legendary Chicago family establishment, Fiesta Mexicana on 4806 North Broadway. Fiesta Mexicana restaurants have been proudly serving traditional Mexican cuisine since 1979. Yep, 1979. I urge you to pause and think about that for just a second. 43 years of frying flautas, churning out chilirienos, and serving the community. Now, maybe unlike some of the uptown Chicago spots being brought to our attention by our seasoned sponsor, Cookies and Carnitas, you know, these spots that pride themselves on innovation and, and, and contemporary flavor fusions. Fiesta Mexicana is a tried, true, and tested pillar of the working class communities of Uptown. And, and I also might just take a moment to urge you to consider what it takes to keep a family restaurant alive and well for 43 years. Imagine the whispering walls the stories told over two taco lunches with squeeze bottle salsa verde. The generations of quinceañeras. Yo, that's consistently hard work. And it's good stuff. So congratulations to Fiesta Mexicana restaurants. Salute to 43 more years and much love to our pals at Cookies and Carnitas for sponsoring for a living and just for allowing us a moment to shine a light on this pillar of the Uptown community. And hey, this episode is also brought to you by a pillar not of the Uptown community, but a pillar of the hippie community. Yo, I met an old hippie. I met him in the parking lot of a jam band show about a month ago, and I told him about the podcast, and bam, we got a new patron of this here project. So a big shout out to Silas Hill, and to his daughter, who I met, and whose name I forgot because I'm a terrible person. It was such a pleasure to meet both of you. Keep on trucking, y'all. And if you, my dear listeners, support the mission of For a Living, if you dig the program, I got an easy way for you to just show your support. Head on over to patreon.com slash for a living. You'll find the link in the show notes, as always. And as always, I'm happy to reward you for your support. You can get a little something in exchange for a wee donation. You don't have to. Enjoy the free ride. I'm just happy to be doing this. Now, like I said, my friends, today I have the pleasure to share with you a conversation that I had 
with a Chicago legend of sorts. Dan Mason has been managing restaurants in Chicago since the Roosevelt administration. Not Franklin, Teddy, <laughs> in a restaurant landscape that's like really competitive and sometimes combative. Dan's compassionate. In, in a workplace environment that can be exhausting, Dan is endlessly energetic. You know, the shy town restaurant scene is always changing, but Dan remains forever kind and, and clever and kind of cool. So join me in conversation with my man, Dan Mason. Dan Mason, welcome to For a Living. I have been looking forward to this longer than you might know. It's a pleasure to have you here. How do you describe what you do? I manage restaurants is the easiest answer. <laughs> uh-huh. And what's maybe the less easy answer? Um, I throw a party every night. Um, <laughs> I think I got some good training uh, in my high school and formative years, <laughs> and I've made that a career. I, I just don't know who's invited. So like in order to make the party happen for one and all, can we dive into what the responsibilities are of a general manager of a restaurant? Uh, sure. Uh, it's kind of hard to uh, describe perfectly because each restaurant has its own uh, necessities, but basically it's to oversee everything, but not really be responsible for a lot of what the guest sees. I'm not responsible for taking orders. I'm not responsible for making drinks. I'm not responsible for cleaning things, but I am responsible for making sure that all those things get done in a timely and inintrusive manner. And you've been doing it for a, a long time. You know, you're really like a bona fide industry veteran at this point. Like not exactly a town floozy, but, but I have it on good authority <laughs> that you've been around a bit. Can you kind of like walk us along your path through the Chicago dining scene to where you are now? Sure. Uh, so it started 25 years ago. I got into management in 1997. I was a server for Bandera in Chicago, which was part of a larger restaurant group called Houston's, which is now formatively known as Hillstone, highly respected company that is known specifically for the management training. And I will tell you that it is all that it has been hyped up to be. It's very long, it's very inclusive, and it's very grueling, and it's a little bit like boot camp. But I got my start with them. I moved around the country with them to Southern California, to Scottsdale, Arizona, and to Palm Beach, Florida. Moving with them was not a choice so much as an opportunity presented itself and they expected you to drop your lease and be ready to move across the country in a matter of days. That was a lot of fun. I, I don't know that I would have moved to all those places that I did move to, but uh, I'm, I'm glad I did. Met some great people and learned a lot along the way. Came back to Chicago uh, and have been in Chicago ever since 2002. So just about 20 years. I've worked 
in everything from mom and pop owned restaurant to sports bars to fine dining restaurants. I have to ask, I'm curious what this like management training boot camp looked like and what you recall learning from that, which you hold close to you at this point in your career. Uh, I could go into that ad nauseum. So the company, <laughs> the way that they are different is that you train in every position in the restaurant from the dishwasher to the cleaning crew to the nighttime prep guy to the grill to the server to the bartender to the busser to the host. You do every position in the restaurant. You train for five days and then you need to be that person on a Friday and Saturday night and pass as that person. So you learn how to do everything. What that has taught me is so much about the little things. Probably the thing that I've used the most that I learned there that very few of my other restaurant managers that have not gone through that have learned is just the mechanics of the dishwasher, the mechanics of the beer draft system, the mechanics of a grill and all the cooking equipment. As an employee at Bandera, you learned how to fix things. You learned when things broke, how to diagnose it so that you didn't need to reach right out to the phone and call some costly repair company, but to try and learn things and, and diagnose and fix it yourself. So you really do have to become a, a jack of all trades uh, of sorts, eh? Yeah, I 100%. I, I, so I would say that my training provided me with that opportunity to be a jack of all trades. I would not say that it is a requirement of the job, but I would say that it is uh, beneficial. Yeah. And it has paid its dividends. Yeah, it makes you better at the job for sure, right? I agree. When you look back at your last 20 years or so in Chicago, it, Dan, if you could go back and, and, and work at any one of your old haunts, which place would you like to return to and why? I, I opened a restaurant, a British pub called Elephant and Castle, which was down in the Loop at Lake and Wabash. It was the third location in Chicago and would, would have made it, I think, the 20th restaurant of the restaurant group, which had equal number of restaurants in Canada and the U.S., I was hired to be the general manager of this new restaurant, and I entered when the building was just a skeleton. The floor wasn't laid down. Walls weren't built. It was basically just an open space, and I was there for every installation of every piece of equipment and elevator and stairwell and beer draft system and refrigerant. And I worked there as the general manager for three years. And then got promoted to the director of operations and oversaw it for another three years. So it's I spent a big chunk of my career working at at, the, at that restaurant. I cultivated a great team. I hired a lot of great people, a lot of people that I'm still very close to to this day, and uh, just had a lot of fun. It, it was the one place that I felt that I owned, despite the fact that financially I was not paid out as an owner, but I knew every square inch of that restaurant and knew pretty much every customer that walked through there. 
it wasn't so much going to work as it was going to throw a party. Like it, it, it really was. And it didn't hurt that the hours were great. We were very lunch heavy and after work heavy, but we weren't a late night place when I was there. So my hours were pretty much nine to five and uh, was off on Saturdays and Sundays, which is unheard of in the, in this, in the industry. And you had like younger kids at that time. So, so being around for them, like when they got home from school, I imagine made all the difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a five-year-old and a one-year-old at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Is that place still around? Are they still doing business? It is. Uh, the, they're still doing well up until COVID slowed things down. They changed their hours. They started becoming an, a late night place and they, we were only open till midnight and uh, we seldom would have anybody come in after 10 or 1030. Now they're a two o'clock bar. And the last time I was there for a, a get together with a bunch of ex-employees, we, uh, we were there until two o'clock and the place was packed. Oh, wow. Maybe this dives too quickly into the nuts and bolts, but like part of your gig is managing the money. You know, making sure everybody gets their fair cut, making sure that everything is above board in an industry that has kind of a tradition of doing things under the table. And I wonder, like, how you do this, like how you manage the money. Can you kind of walk me through that side of your job? One thing I think is to be very transparent when it comes to tips and when it comes to tip tracking and when it comes to tip sharing. So having an organized system, be it a spreadsheet or if you're doing it old school and putting cash in envelopes, you need to uh, have a good system for it and allow people to ask questions and say, where did my money go from last night? So in my current endeavor, I have employees that when they're hired, I tell them, you're a server. This is what you can anticipate to sell in an evening. This is how many tables you can expect to have. This is how many guests you can expect to wait on. This is the tip percentage that you can expect to get from the guest. And this is the tip percentage that you're going to pay out to your support staff. And then those support staff members know that the bartenders get 2% of total sales and the bus boys get 3.75% of total sales and the food runners get 2.5% of total sales. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very structured and very organized. And I think that that is the first step in being fair. Now, the other step that some people get wrong is depending on who you're going to put where. Every day when we open, we have the same tables, but there is no set structure that needs to be followed that says when you have eight servers working, this is the exact section that they're going to have and which tables are going to be assigned to them. Um, so a lot of that is in the management hands. If it's a particularly beautiful day and everybody's going to sit outside on the patio, you can anticipate that the patio is probably going to be the busiest location. So maybe don't put so many servers inside and only a few people outside so that the people outside have larger sections and get inundated and might have great sales and make great money, but might give bad service. 
when we build the floor plan for the day, we build it and we look back on the past few days to see who was in what station so that one person is not constantly assigned to one particular area, but so that all can benefit from what might be considered a better station. And do your colleagues have a sense of the care that you put into that to make it more egalitarian so you can spread the wealth around? Because it seems like there's a strategy of assigning these tables and the strategy is really steeped in the desire to make sure that no one server is particularly advantaged. Like, do they know that this is happening? Because I I ask because I remember when I was a server, I always kind of felt like there were certain servers that were always getting the best stations and, you know, they were like friends with the managers or they had been around longer or, or, or. Um, And I I don't know if that's true. It's sort of my conspiratorial thinking. Um, I'll also say I wasn't the best server in the world, but. uh, There are, not to cut you off, but there are definitely people that are stronger than other people and people that are newer to the restaurant that might be weaker. And that plays into what station they get or how many tables that they have. But I'm very clear about that when I tell the servers, hey, you just finished training. You're not going to be in as big a section as some of the veterans are until I see that you're comfortable taking three tables. Then I'll give you four tables. Then when you're, you know, you're comfortable enough to take four tables, I'll put you in a five table station. So I, I definitely let them know. And if they come to me and say, what am I not doing right? And what do I need to do to get there? I will sit down and take the time to say, when you have four tables, you are um, a little flustered. You are missing steps of service or what have you and point out ways for them to, to get better at what they're doing. That's what I'm looking for, right? I can't control the amount of money that they're making because obviously some servers are better and get better tips than other people do. But if I could provide people with the same opportunities and say, you're going to wait on 25 people tonight, I want everybody to wait on 25 people tonight. And that's what I shoot for is to make sure that it's the wealth is spread evenly. And then it's up to each individual person to use their skill set to increase the sales and to get better tips. Right on, man. And just knowing you as long as I've known you, I I imagine that most, if not all, of your servers firmly believe that they're being treated fairly. I hope you don't think I was insinuating otherwise. However, I do know that there are patrons of restaurants who feel like wicked entitled. And now that you've talked a little bit about like kind of like how you manage the coin, I'm kind of curious about how you manage the the patrons, how you manage that party that you were talking about. Like maybe we should start here. Uh, how, how often does someone demand, demand <laughs> to see the manager? And like, what's your approach to these sometimes volatile, often annoying interactions? I will start off by saying that things have changed drastically in the last two years. I will also say that where I work now, which is not in downtown Chicago, but I'm working in Winnetka, which is one of the more affluent white suburbs, there is a different clientele base. And I 
had preconceived notions when I moved up here a year ago of what I would anticipate my guests would be like, and I was wrong, joyfully wrong. I probably now have a clientele base that is more understanding and more compassionate, and at the same time, also better traveled and better educated culinarily. So their standards are higher for what things should be like. But they also are less demanding and more requesting to talk to managers. <laughs> but I will I will paint with a broader brush and say that I always go with the anticipation of things going bad. I prepare myself for the worst. And if it's better than the worst, then it's a win. So I'll walk up to a guest with a smile and say, hi, how are you? You asked to speak to the manager and I'm giving them all my attention. I don't know what they're going to say is going to be positive or negative, but I know that they're asking to talk to me and they want my attention. So being distracted and talking to, you know, keeping my eye on somebody that's going on at the bar while I'm talking to the guest is not really giving them the value that they're looking for, for this interaction. So I give them my attention and try and approach the situation gingerly to see what I'm up against. And then act accordingly. If somebody is very angry about something, but rightfully so, apologizing is the first thing you have to do. You have to say, I'm sorry. I'm on your side. I'm going to fix this. What do I need to do to do so? What's going to make you happy? You know, is going to make you happy preparing another duck breast or is what's going to make you happy me buying you dessert. And that is where I think experience comes in because everybody's different and you just have to know how to read your room. So maybe this is when you have to take into consideration buying dessert for them or giving them a gift certificate for the next time that they come in or buying appetizers. You know, you just have to be able to assess that. Sometimes people don't even want you to buy anything for them, but they want your attention to just say, hey, I witnessed this. I think it would be better X, Y, or Z. And I say, thank you very much. I appreciate your input because I do. I I can't say that I know everything about the restaurant business, but allowing the guests to talk and allowing the guests to get off their chest, whatever it is that they wanted to get off their chest is of paramount importance and allowing them the time to do so at which can be trying, right? You know, when, when does somebody want to yell at you, but they want to yell at you at seven o'clock on a Saturday night when the restaurant is at its, at its peak and you're really busy and you're trying to run around and put out fires Yeah, and you still need to allow the time for the guests for that to happen. Just out of curiosity, at the restaurant at which you currently work, how many requests to speak to the manager do you field on a given week on average? I think it would be easier to say how many times do I do it on a given day on average. Okay. I would say somebody asks to speak to the manager maybe 10 times. I would say that Eight out of those 10 times, it's to say something positive. 
maybe even nine out of 10 times. Sometimes it's just to say, um, I just used your bathroom and you're low on toilet paper. Sometimes it's to say, our server this evening was the best server I've ever had and I can't wait to come back here. And sometimes it's for somebody to say, I'm planning on coming back for dinner next week and I was hoping that we could sit in the same table and that you could stop over and say hi to us the next time we're there because we're coming in with my boss and I want to make sure that we feel special. So it, it really can be anything. Huh. I think in the earlier days of my career, I always thought that somebody was going to yell at me. But as I've realized, the better job you do as a manager and the better job you do at training your staff and the better job you do at monitoring your food and making sure that there's consistency and that you set your standards high, the less people demand to see a manager for something negative and the more chances that come up to, for somebody to say something positive to you. Dan, I have to say, I, I, am, I am shocked but heartened to find that four times out of five, when someone asks to speak to the manager, they're really just trying to share good news or just get a little positive attention or a little bit of a bump in service. I would not have imagined that. I, I, think, I think some of it could come from the fact that in the post-COVID world, there are people that appreciate the fact that restaurants are still open and they're not just shoveling food at people, but they're still providing hospitality and they're still trying to entertain and allow people to indulge in good food and good wine and good experiences. This isn't me saying that, but this is guests just telling me, we're so happy that you're open. We're so happy that you're staffed well. We're so happy that the supply chain hasn't prevented you from being able to prepare the dishes that you prepare. A lot of the, my clientele base is thankful for that. And I think that is not, well, I can't say, I, you know, I, I work in a very particular neighborhood that is different than working at some of the restaurants and dealing with different clientele that I've had in different locations. So I don't know if it's just where I'm at at this moment or if culture has changed and more appreciative in a post-COVID world. Yeah, I think it could be a little bit of both. You know, I'm actually really interested to, if, if you're down for it, kind of take a, a, a walk through the space in which you work now. You already mentioned that you work in a rather remarkably affluent North Shore suburb of Chicago. And the restaurant itself, I checked it out. It looks delectable. I'd like to I'd like to join you there one day. The establishment is called Pomeroy. Can you describe what it is and what it feels like to work there? I can. Um, so Pomeroy, Pomeroy is a bastardized version of King and Apple or Royal Apple. So Pom is Apple and Roy is abbreviation of Royale. So it's Royal Apple. So that's where that comes from. But you walk in and it is very much 
based on French restaurants in France. There is a lot of red leather. There is a lot of warm muted colors. There's a lot of brass. It is a centralized bar about a third of the way into the restaurant that is an island bar that people gather around. And there are some tables in the front of that bar and the majority of the dining room is behind it. Our kitchen is located downstairs. So a lot of the noise that comes from kitchens is hidden from the dining room space. So really the ambiance that is created inside the dining room comes a lot from the guests. So I have never been to France, but a lot of my guests who do travel there will take pictures while they're there and come back and go, oh, I got to show you this place that's we had Cocovan and your Cocovan is better than theirs was. Take a look at these pictures. And they say that our owners have uh, done a very good job of getting the small French details right so that when you're dining in our restaurant, they feel transported to France. That's a huge compliment considering the fact that, you know, it, it might be winter time and it's snowing outside and you're, you know, half a mile away from Lake Michigan and the wind is howling and it's unbearably awful outside. Yet people tell me that it reminds me of a place that they dined in Paris with their spouse on their honeymoon. And yeah, yeah, it's 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 really a magical place. And I don't say that lightly. I feel blessed to be working there. It is a lot of fun and it is a lot different from any other place that I've ever worked at before because of, I think, it opening in the location where it opened. Um, we are not on the middle of a high traffic area. We're kind of in the middle of a, of a neighborhood. 20 to 30% of our clientele walk to the restaurant from their homes. Huh. It's uh it's just different. It's 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 really kind of a cool place. And then we have uh we have a small cafe patio in the front of the restaurant with eight round four tops, um four on each side of the door and then this spring we opened a back courtyard patio with 8 foot high limestone walls building out the back of the patio with a wood-burning fireplace and a fully retractable roof with heaters. So people are still dining outside now. It's the middle of October and it's 40 degrees outside and people are still enjoying the outside ambiance of the restaurant. That's awesome. So Dan, I really like the way you describe the scene. And I looked at the website and the food looks magnificent and the space looks like really warm and energetic. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that you found a place that you could feel, as you said, kind of blessed to work at. And as you also alluded to, the neighborhood in which the restaurant is, is like really rather exclusive, it's a beautiful, leafy green old suburb of Chicago. And it exists there as the restaurant industry is increasingly becoming a, a more inclusive space, whereas Winnetka is, is pretty exclusive, you know, designed as such. And I'm kind of curious about how, like, the 
increasing inclusivity of the industry, the increasing diversity of the restaurant industry is an indispensable asset in the restaurant world. And as, as sort of like a, um, an add-on to that, I'm curious about how working in these really diverse environments Im impacts your work as a general manager. And just to like tee that question up a little bit more, <laughs> not that you need it, but I have such fond memories of working in the food industry and the service industry more broadly as a place where like I got to use my Spanish and there were people who had different backgrounds than I had. And I just remember feeling, um, despite all of that, or perhaps because of all of that diversity, a sense of camaraderie and a sense of solidarity. And I really have fond memories of working in the industry. And I know that it's even more diverse and more interesting and more verdant than when I worked in that space decades ago. So again, with all of my babbling taken into account or totally ignored, <laughs> which is probably the best way, how does diversity act as an asset in the restaurant world? And how does it kind of impact the way you do what you do? It used to be, and wrongfully so, that your servers were white women, right? Yeah. Your kitchen was a more ethnically diverse background, but they were in the back of the house. That was never something that really made any sense to me when I was younger. I don't understand the idea of homogenizing a front of the house because, well, let me state this. I, I come from a biological background. I got my degree in conservation biology. And an ecosystem is stronger with diversity. It, it, it doesn't strive and it isn't healthiest when you remove particular flora and fauna from it. The more diverse things are, the better the health of the system is. And I feel the exact same way when it comes to the restaurant and staffing like you said, having different languages spoken. Personally, I speak Spanish and other people that are on there that speak Spanish, but there are also people that speak other languages as well. And I think it's a learning experience for all of us to either know what their background is and culinarily, if you want to talk about how it benefits the restaurant, you know, culinarily getting some input from diverse cultures, but also like it's just more enjoyable to me to have diversity there. I can't pick the guests that walk into my restaurant. The fact that where I'm at right now happens to be fairly Caucasian that I can't I can't do anything about. I can't pick the people that come in there, but I can pick the people that I I'm going to be working with. I'm very open to all walks of life and I support that wholly and I think that we're hiring against that kind of philosophy. Just the, the, there isn't a benefit for the customers. There certainly isn't a benefit for the coworkers. And uh, there's just no positive outcome from hiring 
to exclude anyone. So the Pomeroy seems like a warm and, and a welcoming place. And I, I have this sense that the clientele there, you know, like you said, they're, they're well-heeled folk. They, they, they've traveled more than the average American. They've had splendid opportunities to eat extraordinary French food in France and, and, and they've been to the Amalfi Coast and they, they know what's what. And they're also kind of like subject to, in a way, or otherwise influenced by this American culture, like this food porn culture, where everyone is like a self-styled chef and a food critic. And I guess I kind of want to know like what you wish the restaurant visitor that you have the pleasure of interfacing with, like what you wish they knew about what it's like to work in a restaurant. Because I think there's a lot of misinformation, deliberate and otherwise, around what it means to and what it feels like to work in a restaurant. What do you wish more people knew about restaurant work? I wish people knew that there is inconsistency, not in the human hands. Sometimes a chicken breast is more flavorful than another chicken breast is. Hmm. Sometimes people's criticisms are based on on uh, fallacies, right? The server didn't make the food take longer. So you leaving a bad tip is not fair because the server had nothing to do with it. I wish people would ask for the manager more as opposed to going home and leaving a review online saying the burger was overcooked and I didn't want to bother the server by telling them that it wasn't cooked right. Bother the server. Tell somebody what you want. We can't read your mind and know what you want unless you give us some sort of clue. But to eat two-thirds of a meal – and have the busser take the food away and then go home and yelp about how awful something was when maybe it was a human mistake. And the reason that the dish that you got didn't have any sauce on it was because the food runner grabbed the wrong item or grabbed the food for a different table that said sauce on the side. And that's why it was wrong. And the server didn't pick up on that. So but if you're there and there's something that you, you're not enjoying, say something. Hey, server, uh, I asked for this without cheese. Can I make it without cheese? Yes. We will go downstairs and we will make it for you again without cheese. That is our bad. You ordered it properly without cheese. I rang it in without cheese. I'm sorry it got made with cheese. That is something that we can fix and you get what you want. I think there is a myth that is out there that – the food was going to go back to the kitchen and somebody's going to spit on it or drop it on the floor or X, Y, or Z. And I will tell you that nobody does that. Well, I can't. Okay. Nobody who works in my restaurants does that. I want my guests to come back tomorrow. I want my guests to tell their friends how great everything was. And I want my restaurant to be busy and successful and doing anything that is negative towards somebody's 
food drink experience does not benefit anyone at all. And it's not something that happens. So yeah, let us know what's wrong and let us fix it. Give us the opportunity to fix it before you go home and pour your heart heart out to the internet. Yeah, (laughs) please and thank you. You know, I have to tell you though, like the one thing that I kind of wish more people considered in this age of food porn where, where everyone's like uh, in the know or they feel like they're in the know about restaurants. I wish they knew how how desperately hard it was to keep all the wheels on the bus turning. It's a really complicated thing that you do. And one of the things that complicates your your work and the work of your colleagues is that the the industry itself really attracts all all types and that diversity as as we've discussed is totally an asset but in addition to that diversity the restaurant industry is really conducive to an unhealthy lifestyle right there there's there's the hours which are are rough you know and and then there's the availability of drugs and alcohol and i think because of that you know you have to manage dan mason (laughs) a really motley crew i i guess i kind of wonder i how and why the industry is is open to and and dare i say like promoting of like a really unhealthy lifestyle so i think a lot of the restaurant industry got its reputation because as the adage says nothing good happens after midnight yeah. well a lot of us work late hours when the the normal work clientele work 9 to 5 and they go out after work from 5 to 7 and then they go out for dinner and then they go home and go to bed we do the same thing but it just starts for us at 11 o'clock at night or 12 o'clock at night so I think we get a bad picture painted for us because most of the places that are still open are bars. They're not restaurants. We go out at a later hours, but I don't know that we necessarily drink more than anybody else does. Hmm. That That's not for me to say that in my younger days, I didn't drink more than the average person probably did. I certainly have enjoyed beverage from time to time. Um, (laughs) but, uh, I don't, I don't know that it's a fair portrayal to, to say that the restaurant industry is a motley crew. And that, and that's not saying that I'm offended by you, Dan Lazar, you're a wonderful human being, (laughs) but I, I think, you know, if you work in a bank where the requirements for the job are to have a postgraduate degree in finance, you're definitely cutting out an uncollege graduated person from the group of people that you hang out with and the group of people that portray your industry. So your industry is somebody who's going to be making a lot of money, probably if you're in finances, right? And you look at it as being, oh, those people have a lot of money and they're well-educated and that paints people in a less motley crew version and people who work in the restaurant industry can really come from all walks of life and different levels of education. And I can't say that 
an uneducated person who just came to our country and barely speaks the language is any motlier than I think somebody who graduated from Harvard and has a piece of paper that they hang up on their wall. Yeah. Touche. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I guess what I'm trying to get to is this concern and curiosity that I have that because one could have just gotten out of jail and they can work at a restaurant because someone has substance abuse issues and, and a record, a police record of having substance abuse issues that doesn't like preclude them from enjoying gainful employment True. in the restaurant industry. And I think that's a good thing, right? I celebrate that. It's also the case that the job is super stressful. It's super high energy. It's super hard to come down from. And oftentimes people are trying to come down from it at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And it's not uncommon to, you know, want to have a couple drinks or a couple, couple bumps after a long shift. And maybe this isn't the case at, at Pomeroy, right? But I think we both know that there's like a scene among bartenders and servers and people in the industry more broadly. And that scene in Chicago has, in my understanding, not always been particularly good for the liver or the lifespan. Sure. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I, 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 I do. So I'm very open about it, talking to people and saying, hey, um, I hired you when you came into work. You looked a particular way. You had a clean, cleanly shaven face. You were showered. Your shirt was well-pressed when you came into the interview and on your first day of work. And today you've got five days growth and you've got a little vomit dried up on your face. And your <laughs> shirt is all wrinkly. Yeah. You, you look like you woke up in the backseat of a cab. Um, that's not who I hired. Yeah. I think that lets people know where your line is drawn, right? I also have always been very open about my criticism about cocaine and cocaine usage, and I don't support it in the industry at all, and I don't support it in my restaurant. I had a boss that once told me, if anybody who's working for us can afford to be using cocaine, they're not making their <laughs> money here and they're probably stealing from us. Now, yeah. that is probably a very crazy way to look at it, but I think I understood what he was trying to say. I've just been very open about the fact that, hey, if you're doing that, I don't want it in the restaurant and I'm not going to stand for it. You know, most places have a policy about being under the influence at work and that it's a terminatable offense. Now I I've worked in bars before where we did work um, and we were allowed to drink, but anybody who was incapable of doing their job, th there was disciplinary actions to that. I, I'm grateful that the industry tends to be lenient towards people who might have substance issues 
And I'm grateful that the industry is welcoming towards people who might not have, you know, picture perfect backgrounds, you know, whatever that might mean. At the same time, I wonder like how that impacts what you do because you have this opportunity and this responsibility, you know, to, to keep all the cylinders running at full steam. And, and, and I know that energy that restaurants get, you know? Yeah. And I know how important it is for all the cylinders to be firing and for all the carbs to be clean, you know? Yeah. That's kind of why I was asking. It's not like a, um, of a, a, a suggestion or a, uh, a value-laden remark I'm making. It's just this um, interest I have in like how the industry can balance its its kind of beautiful desire to be open to anyone who can do the work with the problems that some of the stresses of the industry put on people. I, I think I think you know talking about it, and if somebody is having issues that are affecting their ability at work, it's not letting them go unchecked. You know, obviously you're not going to talk about it in the middle of the dining room with other staff members around or clients or guests around, but, you know, talk to somebody and you got to treat everybody fair. Yeah. And, and know that they, maybe they do have challenges that you don't have to deal with that they are dealing with. Um, Being compassionate to your guest goes a long way, but being compassionate to your employees goes an even longer way, I think. 100%. Now, Dan, when we were miking up, I told you that I had a little surprise for you. You see, Dan Mason, like like many among us, uh, I've long seen you as a distinguished and, and a charming fella. So I thought it only appropriate uh, to try to charm you just a wee bit. And and how better to do so than to offer you a question posed by the most charming charmer among us, your friend and mine, the kosher sausage king of Chicago, <laughs> Mr. Scott Robin. Here is a question for you from our dear friend. Are you ready for it? I'm, I'm ready for it. All right, here we go. Hey, uh, Scott Robin here. First time caller, long time Dan Mason fan. <laughs> uh, years ago, you and Jessica had created a business plan to start your own restaurant. Now you've got about 20 plus years more of experience under your belt. And I'm wondering, what do you think of that original plan? And would you ever consider revising it and opening a restaurant of your own now? That is uh, just the kind of question that I would anticipate coming from Scott Robin, who <laughs> is a, a, a very near and dear friend of ours. And I, I, I can see where he's coming from with this. Uh, yeah, it, it is something that Jessica and I worked on. Uh, it is still something that we talk about. It is still something that when we've gone to other places, we say, hey, this has got the vibe that we were talking about, or this has the X, Y, Z that we were talking about. I'm not really a big risk taker. Opening a restaurant, I have seen a lot of people do well, and I've seen a lot of people not do well. And 
I've seen great restaurants fail and I've seen horrible restaurants succeed. And I know that there is a tremendous amount of financial risk that goes into opening up a restaurant. I was going to put together a business plan and we were going to open up our own place. And then kids happened. And where I looked at my own life was, I don't think that I could open up my own business and put the time commitment in and still be a parent the way that I want to be a parent at the same time. Maybe I'm riding on the coattails of other people and letting them put the risk there and I'm running their businesses for them. I I think I'm just too apprehensive about the things that you can't control. I like to be able to control the things that make me successful. And I think that there's just too much to owning your own restaurant that can go against you that you can't control that prevents me from doing that. That's a perfect response. And I can only imagine that it'll satiate our dear friend, Scott. Dan, you just turned 51 the other day. It turns out we're, we're not young men anymore. <laughs> I wonder what your hopes are for the remainder of your distinguished career. That is a good question. I like where I'm at currently. I like the people that I work for. I like the hours that I work. I like the people that I work for. I like the cuisine that I'm dealing with. I don't think I've ever been as satisfied as I am. I have gone farther up the ladder in other places and had more responsibility as I'm getting farther along in my career. I like being able to not have 10 restaurants reporting to me and the problems that 10 restaurants bring. I can handle the amount of stress that comes from running one business. And I don't know that I want the stress that comes from running 10 businesses. So I don't know that I necessarily want to move up again and be a multi-unit operator but it really depends on the day. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I mean, I, you know, the question that I answered about Scott, I, again, don't, my kids are grown up. I don't have that time commitment that I need to um, give to them um, as much. And maybe opening my own restaurant would be, should be something that I should think about. It, it really depends on, on the day. I think today you're catching me at a day where I don't think that's in the cards. Well, it brings me great joy to hear that you're you're very happy where you are at Pomeroy. And if it so happens that they have the pleasure of having you on board for the remainder of your working life, it's their victory and it sounds like it will be yours as well. And and speaking of victories, I was hoping that before we go you could share with me two stories. One story of a professional triumph, a victory, if you will, and one of a failure. Can we start with a failure so that we could end appropriately so on a note of triumph? Uh, Sure. So um, this kind of follows up nicely to what we just discussed. So I have moved around a lot with my career. I have become disenfranchised with some particular group and then looked for greener pastures. And I wonder that if I 
stayed put for longer. Um, if I would have maybe moved higher up in the echelon or the triangle of uh, the operations, and if I wouldn't still be at the level of a general manager, but if I'd be in a different place and maybe be part of a bigger multi-unit operation and have a cushier, less physically demanding job, albeit the stress would probably be higher. But I just wonder if I'd be in a different, maybe better paying position if I hadn't moved around so much. So I I don't think I'd be where I am right now if I didn't make all the moves that I was at. And I don't know that I'd be on the podcast with you if I, if I always stayed at one place. So I, I kind of like to see the, the silver lining to everything, but uh, I think that's might've been a bit of a failure is just moving around so much. I mean, maybe I have to say, I'm, I'm almost sad to hear you see it that way. I think it like contributes so much to, how broad your worldview is and how acute your sensibilities are and how high your empathy levels are for for your colleagues and your friends. I mean, of course, I come from a place where I wouldn't want to change a thing about you. So there, there's my bias in that. But, um, well, I suppose you see the other side as well, right? You took the risks. You saw a bunch of different, you know, settings. You know, you worked in different communities and, I think it's great, man. I'm really, in a way, envious of your career because I just, I know that there are so many people in so many different spaces that you left such a positive impact on. Like, you're you're kind of this stuff of legend. Like, I know all of these people who have worked with you over the years and they always speak so highly of you. So you cast a bit of a wider net, but... You always brought so much love and empathy to the work that you were doing that, I don't know, maybe that's just the way I I see it. But I hear you, man. I, you know, I, as someone who's kind of similarly, right, like I could have planted my roots down as a teacher in one community. I would be retired right now, right? or in the next couple of years, you know, I'm 23 years into the teaching game and I would have probably a reasonably cushy retirement and be all settled and stuff. But like you, you know, I, I felt the need to explore different spaces and I'm not going to be retiring anytime soon, <laughs> <laughs> even if I want to. Um, anyway, I guess all I'm saying is I feel you. And, um, well, I, and I will say that's very touching. Um, I, it feels good to know that I've, people have good things to say about me. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, they do. Give me that story of triumph. Uh, so, I mean, kind of, it comes from a little bit of traveling around and so, okay. I've raised two kids while working in the restaurant industry and that I feel great about. One of them has dipped his toes into it and it's been told to me that he has a great work ethic and he does a fantastic job. Like that feels good that uh, I've raised two kids amongst this environment and uh, am so close to them and have them interested in what I do and wanting to take part in it. But I think at the same time, I've raised other children as well, which are all the restaurants that I've opened over the course of my career. And to see 
that they're still open and to still see that they're succeeding. And especially the places that I opened from the get-go, um, be it Elephant and Castle, which we discussed about earlier, and the fact that it's expanded its hours and it's busy all the time, that feels great. It, it's great to know that the stones that I put in place are still there. As I'm working in my environment now, my clientele base travels to Florida, where I spent a good part of my career. And I opened up a restaurant down there in 1999 called the Palm Beach Grill. And it is just as hot a restaurant now as it was when it opened. And my clientele asked me if I know anybody down there and if I could help them out with reservations, which I think is hilarious. Oh, wow. That was so long ago. But just to know that you know, the bar that I helped build and the organizational systems that I put in place and everything that I did and the blood, sweat and tears that I put into helping open this restaurant and just knowing that it's still around and flourishing, um, that that's like the biggest triumph. Yeah, man. I love that connection, you know, the, the being able to raise kids while, while doing this kind of taxing work. Uh, and then these these restaurants that you help to raise and these families and these communities that you help to build. I think it's great, Dan. I, I've always admired you and what you do and perhaps more importantly, how you do it. And, and I can't tell you how grateful I am to have had you in conversation here on this podcast. It means the world to me to be able to have this space to reconnect with you after all this time. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Dan, it's my pleasure. All right, my friends. That was my conversation with Dan Mason. He's a groovy guy. He was also really patient with me as he and I had to navigate some ridiculous technical issues recording this podcast. Can someone just make this easier? Mm, probably. But until then... Please follow this show wherever you get podcasts and maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if for a living means something to you and you have the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com slash for a living. Now I'll be back with you in just two weeks time. Lots of stuff going on between now and then. My baby girl's taking her first class trip, going out to the country with her fourth grade friends. We're cautiously optimistic that that's going to be a stellar experience for her. And just a couple days after she gets back, she and the wife lady and I are going back to Barcelona. It'll be the first time that Megan wife and I return to the place that we met some 17 years ago. And I cannot tell you how excited I am for that. It's going to be fantastic. Definitely going to hook up with Pedro Ferrer Miranda, who was on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Not sure I'm going to make it to one of his wineries, but I have been drinking some of his wine. Now, don't judge. I don't start drinking before 10 a.m. But boy, oh boy, is that Solar Viejo Rioja insane. Yeah, so we'll meet up with Pedro, maybe Diego, if Guillo, Guillemar Mendieta Bademon, who was on this podcast a couple seasons ago, the cardiologist, if she's in town, hope to meet up with some of the old students. 
probably going to pop by the old Benjamin Franklin International School to see what's happening. I'm told that the place is virtually unrecognizable. Not sure how I feel about that. You know, we all got to be pretty cautious about doing time travel. But I've told my daughter so many stories about that place. It would be a shame to not bring her by. And we're going to drive around Catalonia, got a car for a few days. Gonna see the mountains, gonna see the Mediterranean. It's gonna be fantastic. But you don't worry, because I'll be dropping the podcast two weeks from now. And I already know about this podcast. It's fantastic. You're not gonna wanna miss it. So until then, you please take care of yourself. Indeed, treat yourself. And I'll be back with you soon.